even if Arbery somehow, even though he was unarmed, confronting them with deadly force or cause fear, them being subjected to serious bodily injury, the only time you can make a self-defense argument in that situation is when you are acting lawfully and the victim is acting unlawfully. And if there's no citizen's arrest, the initial confrontation with the rifle could be said to be unlawful by the defendants and therefore their entire self-defense argument might fall apart. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams coming to you from Southern California. I have two books out titled How to Get Sued in the Sled. Well, in Glynn County, Georgia, the trial of three white men charged in the death of Ahmad Aubrey has selected a jury. However, the makeup of that jury has raised some controversy. With 11 white members and only one black member in a community where the black population is over 25%, the prosecution has accused the defense of eliminating qualified black jurors from serving on the Aubrey jury. Well, in response to a motion filed by the state, Presiding Judge Timothy Walmsley said this court has found that there appears to be intentional discrimination. But after hearing the arguments by the defense, the judge ultimately denied the state's motion and gave the green light to move forward, ruling that there were in fact valid reasons that went beyond race for why the jurors were dismissed. So today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we'll spotlight the trial and the killing of Ahmad Aubrey. We'll discuss the racial breakdown of the jury, the intentional discrimination in jury selection, the citizen's arrest law, and the potential impact of all of this and what can do on the case. And to do that, we have Professor Christopher Slobogan, Director of the Criminal Justice Program at Vanderbilt Law School. Professor Slobogan has authored more than 100 articles, books, and chapters on topics relating to criminal law and procedure, mental health, and evidence. According to the Leader Report, he is one of the five most cited criminal law and procedure professors in the country over the last five years. Professor Slobogan is also an affiliate professor of psychiatry at Vanderbilt. Welcome to the show, Chris. Well, thank you very much for having me, Greg. Well, Chris, let's talk a little bit about the Aubrey trial. I mean, it's right we're right in the middle of it. Uh, we've seated a jury. We've seen the judge kind of issue some admonishments and then back away from them once he saw some other evidence. But what are the things that we're looking at in this trial? How did it come to be? What can we expect out of it? Well, obviously, this is a very high-profile trial simply because of the racial issues. We have three white men charged with killing a black man under controversial circumstances. And there are a lot of issues that have already come up specifically with respect to jury selection, uh, whether this is a valid citizen's arrest, whether there was self-defense on the part of the defendant. So there's a lot going on in this trial that is both interesting legally and important politically. Let's talk about the jury selection since that seems to be uh, recent and, and prominent in the news. We've seen the judge step up and say that he thinks that there may have been some racial discrimination, but then he backed down from that decision once he heard the explanations. What were the explanations? Why would he back down and should he have? Yeah, maybe I should give a little background about all of this. So, sure. of course, the jury selection process, if if your audience is legally trained, they know this, but maybe some of your audience does not know this, that during jury selection, both sides get an unlimited number of cause challenges, which are challenges to a prospective juror which require a good reason for excluding the juror because they're biased in some significant way. They have a fixed opinion against either the prosecution or the defendant. And then there are peremptory challenges, 
which are limited in number. And those kinds of challenges don't require any explanation. At least typically, they don't require any explanation. And as I said, those are limited. In this particular trial, the defense got 24 peremptories and the prosecution only got 12. And the reason for that is there are three defendants. So each of the defendants got eight peremptory challenges and the prosecution got 12 or only half of the 24 that the defense got. That may seem unfair, but the idea is that each defendant should be able to have his own peremptory challenges. And so the way the judge resolved the issue is by cutting down the number of challenges for each defendant to eight and upping the number of challenges the prosecution had to 12. Typically in Georgia, the number of peremptories is nine. In this case, it's eight for each defendant and 12 for the prosecution. Well, that's not unexpected for the prosecution. I guess the prosecution could have separated the three defendants instead of bringing them together. And that's absolutely right. It could have tried these defendants separately. It chose to try them together, and thus it knew what the cost would be. It knew that probably the defense would have more peremptory challenges than it, the prosecution, would have. And again, that is probably fair, given that each defendant should have their own peremptories. At the same time, each defendant probably is going to be pursuing the same strategy. So in some ways, it could be seen as unfair in that it does, in fact, give the defense, assuming they're a unit, together twice as many challenges as the prosecution. But again, the prosecution knew this going in, and uh, they pay whatever price they're paying for that. Right. And the defendants really don't even need to cooperate because they can just watch what's happening in terms of the color of the people that are being struck from the panel. Right. So as I said, usually a peremptory challenge doesn't require an explanation, but when a peremptory challenge is used to remove someone on the basis of race or what looks to be the basis of race, then the analysis changes, the situation changes, then an explanation does have to be given. It does not have to be as good an explanation as you would need for a for-cause challenge, but it does have to be some kind of explanation if the opposing side can make out a, a prima facie case that people are being excluded because of race. And of course, in this case, that arguably was happening. The defense was removing people, uh, many people who are black. And so this triggered what is called the Batson challenge, which is the Supreme Court case, Batson versus Kentucky, which required this semi for cause explanation. And what Batson held is the explanation can be, and I'm going to directly quote from a Supreme Court opinion, the explanation can be silly or superstitious, implausible or fantastic, so long as the explanation is race neutral and genuine, the explanation will satisfy a Batson challenge. How is that even a standard? Yeah, right. I mean, it doesn't sound like much of a standard, right? Right, especially when you consider that strict scrutiny is the standard for the review in the Constitution for racial issues. Yes, very good point. But what the Supreme Court was trying to do in Batson is split the difference between a four-cause challenge and a peremptory. It did not want to remove the ability to have some kind of peremptory challenge, but it also wanted to make a bow to the protection of race that you see in the Equal Protection Clause. So it came up with this hybrid kind of challenge. And again, as you say, it's not much. It's not much of a, of a standard at all. Uh, but it does require a race-neutral and genuine explanation. So what the judge was responding to initially was, of course, that all these blacks were being removed. But then he heard the explanation from the defense attorneys. And so, for instance, one explanation uh, for excluding one black woman by the defense was that she said during the voir dire question, this whole case is about racism. Right. 
And another one said that it was wrong. That's right. Killing was wrong. So how does that not constitute cause? Well, it could if it constitutes cause. And of course, they don't even have to use it for every challenge. But I think the judge might have found this was not a for cause challenge because the Supreme Court's held in, with respect to for cause challenges that the reason has to be very good. They have to demonstrate a fixed opinion against one of the parties and simply saying that this case is about racism and even saying that the defendants shouldn't have killed the individual doesn't necessarily mean a fixed opinion. If, for instance, that was followed up by a statement by that prospective juror, well, I can still keep an open mind about this. Right now, I think it was wrong, but if I hear the evidence, I could change my mind. Then that might not be enough for cause, but it's certainly enough for Batson explanation. Right. And now under Batson is what the judge did, Walmsley, did he set up anything for appeal? Do these guys have, obviously they have the right of appeal once and they are probably going to appeal if they're convicted, but what consequence on appeal will the judge's statements that there appeared to be intentional racism and then how are the explanations going to get evaluated? Well, of course, the statement by the judge was that he thought the defense might be engaging in intentional racism. So the defense can hardly appeal that if there's a conviction. And of course, if there's an acquittal, the double jeopardy clause prevents the prosecution from appealing. So we may never see any appellate resolution of this particular issue. That's a tough situation to be in. Maybe that's one of the reasons that they feel free to make the kind of challenges that they've been making. Yeah. And I think it's particularly interesting because in Georgia, at least in this case, the attorneys were allowed to ask questions during voir dire. And again, voir dire is the process of jury selection, asking prospective jurors questions. The defense was allowed to ask questions. Now, in federal court, as you know, and in some states, only the judge is allowed to ask questions. But here are the defense attorneys, as well as the prosecution, was allowed to ask questions. And you can see how that could set up the situation we have here. The defense attorney can ask leading questions or questions that might trigger an answer that somehow provides an explanation, a bats an explanation. So, for instance, the defense attorney could say, well, do you think there's racism involved in this case? And the juror might respond, yeah, I think there's racism involved in this case. And then that maybe could be used by the defense as a Batson explanation. So it's really a situation sort of rife for problematic results in terms of jury selection. It's probably one of the reasons that the appellate judges always would defer to the discretion of the trial court. Yeah, I think it is. And I think even if the defense attorney's explanations were race neutral and genuine, I think the resulting juror with just one black on it is very bad optics. It's it's not a good representation of how the system should work in a case like this. And here in this jurisdiction, the percentage of blacks in that community are 25% or so. Exactly. So you would expect to see a juror where at least four people, 25%, are black. Yeah, three or four. And uh, we don't have that. And so I think, again... It, it, to some extent, I think probably undermines the legitimacy of the proceeding. Now, if the three white individuals are convicted, that may not matter if they're acquitted. I think it might add to the temperature after the verdict comes down. Certainly. Well, let's talk about one of the defenses. The three defendants have claimed this kind of slavery era Georgia law for allowing them to make a citizen's arrest. Apparently, that's founded in allowing slave owners to recapture escaped slaves at the time. And uh, interestingly, now that law has been repealed. Yes. This specific law involving citizens' arrest has been repealed and changed. There's still the ability to 
engaged in a citizen arrest, but now it's only uh, certain business owners and security guards. The average private citizen may no longer effectuate a citizen arrest in Georgia, but in almost every other state, this kind of law still exists. Georgia changed it precisely because of the Arbery case. Right here in California, you can make a citizen's arrest if you have probable cause to believe that a felony has been convicted. Mm -hmm. But how does the era of the genesis of the law play into the defense? Are the prosecutors going to make hay here with the fact that this, you know, these guys were using a slavery era law to hunt down, or in their words, I'm sure, hunt down a black man? I think if I were a judge, I would not allow the prosecutor to make any kind of claim or statement about the genesis of these laws. I think that would probably be considered irrelevant. I mean, I'm sure the prosecution would like to do that, but I don't think the judge would allow it. And by the way, on, on the genesis of these laws, it is true a lot of them were passed post-Civil War as a way of effectuating Jim Crow and making sure that private white citizens could keep black people down by arresting them for trumped up or minimal defenses. But it's also true that some of these citizen arrest statutes pre-existed the Civil War and Jim Crow uh, because there were no organized police forces in the United States until the 1830s and 1840s. So actually, citizen's arrest was a pretty important implement with respect to criminal justice back in the 18th and 19th centuries. And it worked for the first DA in this case. Apparently, the first district attorney declined to prosecute these three gentlemen because of the citizen's arrest law, even though apparently wasn't stated at the time of their arrest, the three gentlemen's mm-hmm. arrest. But how does that play into it? Yeah, well, it, it plays into it in a very interesting way, because actually, I think you have to think about the argument by the defense here and the converse argument by the prosecution in terms of two steps. The first step is the citizen's arrest step. And that is the argument that it was legitimate for these defendants to follow Arbery, chase him down, and confront him with the gun, all because they believed that he'd committed a felony and that they were justified, therefore, in arresting him. So that's the first step. And that, if it's accepted, legitimates their presence there in front of Arbery. But then, of course, they killed him. And that requires a second step. That requires proving a self-defense claim. In other words, yes, they were there legitimately as citizens making an arrest under the Georgia law, but that doesn't necessarily justify killing someone unless they have a good reason for it. And that second argument is they were acting in self-defense, that they were fearful for their life, or at least fearful that Aubrey would cause serious bodily injury. Well, apparently they didn't know whether Aubrey was armed. Yeah, so that's relevant to both the citizen's arrest issue and the self-defense issue. So one thing I would raise, if I were the prosecutor, is under the previous Georgia law that applied in the Arbery, at the time Arbery was killed, it required, as you said, similar to California, good cause to believe that the person had committed a felony. Now, if you remember the facts of this case, and from what I know, at least, I may be wrong about this, but from what I know, what the defendants saw, if they saw anything directly, was Arbery exit a home that's under construction, knowing that he wasn't armed and they didn't have anything in his hands, right? He was running. He was in a jogging outfit. So where is the felony here? He may have been trespassing, but that's only a misdemeanor in Georgia. You need at least a burglary. The owner of the properties come out and said he, Aubrey didn't take anything, and apparently it wasn't the first time he'd been in the house. Right. And of course, that's only relevant if the defendants knew that at the time. If they can say they had reason to believe that he was committing a felony, then that does trigger the possibility of a citizen's arrest argument. But what I'm saying is, from what they could see, 
they had no idea this was a felony. And so right off the bat, their citizen's arrest argument might not win. And also the citizen's arrest law requires that the defendants observe or at least have a strong belief that a felony occurs. So if they didn't observe any kind of criminal activity, but this was rather something they surmised from where Arbery was the first time they saw him, that would be another problem. But I think the main problem is I don't see a felony here unless I'm missing some facts. Right. And it appears from some of the admissions that they've made so far, at least in the media, and some of the police reports have said where they didn't know if there was any evidence that existed that a burglary had occurred. Yes, that, that's my point. That's exactly right. And, you know, so that pretty much defeats the, the citizen's arrest argument. What are the mm-hmm. defenses that they have left? Well, so if there's not a legitimate citizen's arrest, uh, then their self-defense argument falls apart. Because even if Arbery somehow, and we'll get to this in a second, I think, but even if Arbery was somehow, even though he was unarmed, confronting them with deadly force or caused fear, them being subjected to serious bodily injury, the only time you can make a self-defense argument in that situation is when you are acting lawfully and the victim is acting unlawfully. And if there's no citizen's arrest, the initial confrontation with the rifle could be said to be unlawful by the defendants. And therefore, their entire self-defense argument might fall apart right there from the get-go, right? right from the initial aspect of this confrontation. Right. And it appears that there is absolutely no evidence that they intended to hold him for the police. Yeah, well, that's another problem. So let's assume that is the case, and that also creates a problem. If, in fact, they're willing to admit they weren't really making a citizen's arrest, well, then that obviously blows the citizen's arrest argument out of the water. But assuming there is a citizen's arrest, let's just assume that, they still have to show that the use of deadly force was justified. They were following him. Exactly. They pursued him for five blocks. I'm thinking in Arbery's mind, he's thinking, oh, my gosh, I hear these three white guys following me in a truck with a Confederate flag. And now this guy with the rifles come out of out of the truck. I'm in big trouble here. I'm in danger. And so Arbery reacted the way he did. Now, the defendants are going to say, yeah, but he overreacted. And I'm just I'm just basing this on what I have seen. I may be totally wrong about what happened. But what I think may have happened is that. Arbery grabbed the gun, and then the defendants will have to argue they reasonably believed, based on that conduct by Arbery, that they were in danger of serious bodily injury or death, and therefore they were justified in shooting. Right, which doesn't appear to be the case because at no point in the video or does it appear that Arbery had any kind of a weapon with him. Yeah, it it appears he does not have a weapon, and, and from what I can tell from the video, it also appears that he wasn't remotely close to turning that rifle on one of the defendants, but maybe that's wrong. Again, we haven't right. heard all the facts. Uh, and and the let's defense. just play devil's advocate here. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, we've all been in situations where uh, we've seen construction in a neighborhood. What reason do you have to go walk into somebody's construction site? Huh? Well, um, ask my wife. She does it on a routine basis. There's construction going on all over the place here in Nashville, and she will routinely walk at least into the garage space and try to peer through the, the lattice work to see what's going on. I think a lot of people do that. I'm not, it is technically a trespass. Do we all have a little bit of Mrs. Kravitz in us? Yeah, um, I guess so. But the, the key point I was trying to make earlier is even if it is a crime, it is a misdemeanor in Georgia, unless something is taken or unless some kind of violence occurs. And so you don't get the citizen's arrest argument if it's just a misdemeanor. 
Well, you don't have citizen's arrest. You don't have self-defense. It appears that you're acting unreasonably even in what you're doing. Are your predictions pretty much this is uh, bad for them? Well, let me make let me make the defendant's argument, right? I have been pushing the prosecution's point of view, but let's make the defense argument here. Um, they see a man come out of the house, and they've heard reports of someone going in and out of houses in the neighborhood before with a couple of break-ins. So even though they don't see him carrying a weapon, and even though they don't necessarily see him carrying anything, they think maybe there's something valuable in the house. This guy may have just taken it, which may be upset to a burglary. So now they have probable cause to believe a felony has been committed. So now they think they have justification to make an arrest. So they follow him down the street. He finally stops. They get out of the car. And just to be safe, they carry their weapon with them. He immediately grabs their weapon, tries to wrest it from them. And the guy with the weapon is scared that Arbery's going to be able to turn the weapon on him. Uh, and so before Arbery can do that, he shoots Arbery. That's, I think, the best story the defense can tell. Tell explain away the racial epithets they used. Well, yeah, I mean, and the Confederate flag and all right. of that aura of because uh, I wouldn't classify these guys as white. I'd classify them as something else. Yeah. Okay. Well, in any event, yes, you could say there's some definite bad motive here, some bad faith on the part of the defendants, and I'm sure the prosecution will try to get that kind of thing into evidence. There's one other aspect, again, if I'm the, the defense attorney, I might emphasize, because if I'm a prosecutor, I'd say, well, look, they didn't need to get out of the truck with their rifle, right? Why immediately exacerbate the situation by getting out of a truck with a rifle and pointing, apparently pointing at Arbery, didn't need to take that step. And then once Arbery appeared agitated and started grabbing for the gun, instead of shooting them, move away from Arbery. Right. Get out of the dangerous situation as opposed to immediately resorting to deadly force. And the reason I'm raising this point is this is where Georgia's stand your ground law comes into play. About 20 states have a stand your ground law. Georgia has one. And what the stand your ground law says is you don't have to resort to less dangerous lawful alternatives. So long as you reasonably believe you're in imminent danger of death or serious bodily injury, you can stand your ground and shoot. You don't have to retreat even if you're outside in public as opposed to inside your home. Right, but you so, don't bring a gun to a knife fight. Well, okay, yeah, that, that's the argument by the prosecution that they immediately exacerbated the situation by bringing the weapon, which arguably they didn't need to do at all, or at least they should have stayed at a safe distance. All right, well, let's play this out even a different way. Yeah. What is the right way to do it? Let's assume that, you know, Georgia's got this law and play it through if it had been done correctly using these circumstances. Yeah. So first of all, they need probable cause to believe a felony has been committed. And we've already talked through why that might not have been the case. But let's assume they did have that. Then what Georgia law says is they may use reasonable force to effectuate the arrest. So they cannot use excessive force. And so once again, there may be a problem for the defense here. The argument would be that in effectuating what was otherwise a legitimate citizen's arrest, they overdid it. They used too much force by getting out of the truck with a rifle aimed direct at Arbery. Now, you're asking, well, how could they have done it? How should they have done it? And I guess the defense has an argument, well, how else could they have done it? If they actually were authorized to make an arrest, with the fact in mind they're not supposed to use unreasonable force, using some kind of detention uh, technique that does not involve a weapon might have endangered them. 
So maybe they could justify using a weapon to at least make it clear to Arbery that they meant business and to hopefully cow Arbery into submission. But again, why get so close to him so that he can immediately grab the weapon? Be more careful in how you carry it out. Why not go with the old standard notice and the opportunity to respond? Pull up alongside him and go, hey, um, how you doing today? Uh, We noticed you've been walking into this place a couple of times. Uh, We're concerned about it. We're thinking about making a citizen's arrest. But if you'll just wait, we'll give the police a call, have a conversation with them. If everything's fine, you can go on your way and everybody will have a happy day. If not, then you'll need to answer for what you've done. Why not that? Exactly right. The argument by the prosecution is is going to be they did not need to use the degree of force they used in this case. And what you just described might be considered the best and most reasonable way of dealing with the situation. Right. Well, let's take a moment and talk about what happened after the first DA turned down the prosecution of these guys because he thought the citizen's arrest defense would be valid. Right after that, apparently the video came out and Mm -hmm. then everything blew up. Right. Why would the decision be any different? After the video, I mean, obviously we have all the political pressure and the personal pressure, but why couldn't the prosecutor stand on that ground and say, we're not going to prosecute these guys. The first guy made it, I'm going to make it too. Yeah. Of course, if you want to be cynical, the video made all the difference in the world. The prosecutor figured no one's going to second guess my decision because no one really knows what happened. And I have control of the facts. But once the video came out, the prosecutor no longer has control of the facts. And as a result, the prosecutor was sort of caught right-handed, if you will, and and had to make what I think initially should have been the decision, which is there should be a prosecution here. And of course, we see this over and over again with the advent of body cams. What would have been covered up, what never would have resulted in either civil or criminal liability for the police, now is happening because video is everywhere. From the George Floyd case to the Walter Scott case, you can go on and on. There's so much more video now out there that shows that what the police are saying is not right at all, or at least not completely right. Right. And there's accountability. You know, where do we need to make changes in our justice system to deal with this? Well, it is an interesting question because based on what I just said, one solution would be let's put cameras everywhere, not only body cams on police, but also because, of course, police were not involved in the Arbor case, but put a CCTV camera with zoom vision and night vision on every telephone pole in the country. And yes, that would help deal with some of the problems we're talking about here in terms of cover-ups and lack of information, but you know what the response would be. George Orwell. Yeah, exactly. Uh, You know, privacy invasion out the wazoo. And so that would concern a lot of people. So there is a tension here uh, between getting all the evidence we need and privacy concerns. Another possible way of dealing with it, but much less successful, and I can say that because it's already been tried, is to impress upon prosecutors, hey, it's their job to do justice. And if they think the police are not on the up and up, or in this case, private citizens are not on the up and up, they need to act appropriately and ethically and either bring the charges or in the case of police, maybe even prosecute them. If they think there's been perjury committed by the police or they think the police have covered up evidence and therefore engaged in obstruction of justice, It's just very hard to get a prosecutor to do that because, of course, they rely on the police to make their cases for them. And so basically they're prosecuting one of their own, in a sense, when they do that kind of thing. Right. It seems like we need independence there, an independent prosecutor, and we also need an independent review board for the police themselves rather than having the police police the police. Right. And some states are starting to do that. I mean, there always have been internal review boards, but usually those only come into play 
when there's use of deadly force, and even those are within the police department typically. But more and more commentators are calling for independent review boards to investigate every serious use of force. What's your thought on that? Um, I think it's a good idea. I think it's expensive. And of course, the police are going to say, look, this is just another layer of bureaucracy that's going to make us look bad, but won't really do any good. We've got very tough jobs. We've got to deal with danger day in and day out. And if you're going to be second guessing us every time we pull out a pistol, we're going to quit. This is just too much for us to deal with. And we're already seeing some of that. In the wake of George Floyd incident, there is a higher quitting rate, termination rate, uh, quitting rate is the right word, amongst police. It's not significant, but we have seen more police leaving police forces. And in some places that has been cheered. Yeah, well, certainly. So if you're, the defund the police movement will say, hey, this is what we want. We want fewer police on the street. We want alternatives to the police. We want different kinds of first responders. For instance, when people with mental illness or the homeless are involved, uh, there are lots of other ways of rethinking the so-called police function. So, hey, great. Less police. Let's go with something else. Right. Well, Chris, it looks like we just about reached the end of our program. So I'd like to take this chance to let you share your final thoughts and your contact information, if you'd like, for our listeners. Well, I think this is a very important case. I think we all need to pay attention to it. And I'm hoping whatever the outcome, that the response will be measured, but that people assert their First Amendment rights if they don't like the result. Uh, because I think this is the kind of case that makes a statement about the kind of society we live in. And I guess contact information, c.slobogan at vanderbilt.edu. Great. Well, thank you very much. And as we wrap up, I'd like to take this opportunity to thank you, Professor Chris Slobogan, for joining us today. It was a pleasure having you on the show. Well, it was a great pleasure being here. Thank you. Great. Well, after this discussion, I have a couple of thoughts about this myself. It appears that Ahmad Aubrey's death was likely unjustified. It appears that the three white defendants don't have sufficient defenses to be able to avoid some type of conviction. And I hope for the purposes of social unrest and racial harmony that we have a decision that these gentlemen are convicted and that they're sentenced appropriately by the judge. Glad to see the change in Georgia's law on the citizen's arrest. I think it's some expression that you need some type of training or experience or qualifications in order to make it. It shouldn't just be available to people on the street. And that change needs to be made across the board. That might forgive some of the racial inequities in the past. Nah, not forgive, but at least start to remedy them. And for our listeners, if you like what you heard today, please rate us on Apple Podcasts, your favorite podcasting app. You can also visit us at LegalTalkNetwork.com where you can sign up for our newsletter. I'm Craig Williams. Thanks for listening. Join us next time for another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.
The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.